Go ahead and open your Bible to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, often considered a companion psalm to 135 and often referred to as the Great Hallel. Psalm 136 is a song of exuberant, thankful praise to the Lord. It's a song of exuberant, thankful praise to the Lord, and it is my hope that all of us, wherever God would have us in whatever circumstance God has us in, that we would be a people that give exuberant, thankful praise to the Lord. And as this is not a small task to accomplish, please join me as I ask the Lord's favor on our time this morning. Lord God, we need you. We need you. Every hour we need you. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning. Be glorified, O God, in the reading and the preaching of your word. Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your law. Lord, I pray that you would show us Christ in your word this morning. God, you are holy. You are high above the heavens, and yet you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger. You are the just and the justifier. How can this be except through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ? So Lord, I pray that we would praise you and thank you for who you are and what you do through the person and work of your son. So be glorified this morning, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. Psalm 136, the word of the Lord reads, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. You may recognize that there's a theme in this psalm. <laughs> a phrase repeated 26 times, three words in the Hebrew language. It is a psalm of thanksgiving, as there are four imperatives in this psalm, or rather one imperative repeated four times, give thanks. And the reason to give thanks to the Lord is because of his steadfast love which endures forever. It's an important theme, the love of God. It's a theme that we hear of often. There's no shortage of preaching and singing about the love of God. But beloved, while we can certainly never think too frequently of the love of God, we can think wrongly of the love of God. We ought to think on his love always, but we can get it wrong. We must be informed by his word. What is his love that we may thank him? And so in this psalm, the psalmist directs us in thankful worship of God by dwelling on who God is and what he has done so that we might know his love better and thus give him thanks always. And he focuses on two major aspects, giving thanks to God for who he is and giving thanks to God for what he has done. And so first in our passage, we see that we are to give thanks to God for who he is. And there are three major aspects of the person of God, of his character, that are displayed in the first verses of this psalm. And the first is that the Lord is holy. He is holy. That is to say, he is unique. He stands alone. He is unlike any other. There is none like him. He is the God above heaven. And we see this first in, in the first verse and the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord. You may notice in your Bible, that's capital L-O-R-D. When you see that in your Bible, you should think the word Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God, the name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, the name by which he's commanded his people to know him always. This is not just any Lord. This is not just any God. This is not give thanks generally. This is give thanks to a person a specific person, Yahweh himself, the God of heaven and earth. It's a name that speaks to his eternality. He always was and always will be. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a name that speaks to his self-sufficiency. He needs nobody. He derives his existence from nobody. He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. And it's also a name that we see in Exodus 34, that speaks to his justice and his mercy. After the Israelites break the covenant, making themselves spiritual adulterers to the Lord by worshiping a golden calf, the Lord forgives after Moses intercedes for the people, and Moses asks to, show, to, to see the glory of the Lord. The Lord shows him a portion of his glory, but he declares his nature in Exodus 34. His glory is not something merely to be seen with human eyes, but something to be understood, 
communicated. The Lord declares his name in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining steadfast love to thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. He is holy in his justice, and he is holy in his mercy. Going further, the psalmist declares that he is the God of gods. Whether he is referring to idols that are mere figments of man's imagination or any other cosmic powers, we know this to be sure, that all things have been created by God, that there is no power or authority except that which God has given. So the psalmist declares, whatever powers there be in the world, God is supreme over all of them. Spurgeon says it like this, if there be powers in heaven or on earth worthy of the name gods, he, Yahweh, is the God of them. From him their dominion comes, their authorities derive from him, and their very existence is dependent on his will. Moreover, for the moment, assuming that the deities of the heathens were gods, yet none of them could be compared with our Elohim, who is infinitely beyond what they are fabled to be. And Calvin says it like this, before proceeding to recite God's works, the psalmist declares Yahweh's supreme deity and dominion. Not that such comparative language implies there is anything approaching deity besides Yahweh, but there is a disposition in men whenever they see any part of his glory displayed to conceive of a God separate from, from him, thus impiously dividing the Godhead into parts and even proceeding so far as to frame gods of wood and stone. There is a depraved tendency in all to, make, to take delight in a multiplicity of gods. For this reason, apparently, the psalmist uses the plural number not only in the word Elohim, but the word Adonim, so that it reads literally, praise ye lords of lords. He would intimate that the fullest perfection of all dominion is to be found in the one God. Man loves to make idols, but God is supreme over all of them. He is Yahweh, he is the God of gods, and he is the Lord of lords. If you see that word Lord in your Bible, you'll see it's capital, or sorry, it's lowercase L-O-R-D. It refers to earthly authorities, whether masters or governors. It can also read that he is the authority over all authorities. We see this in Romans 12.1 when Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Whatever authorities exist among men, the Lord is Lord over all of them. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who inhabit it. And this ought to be a supreme comfort to us because, beloved, we know that there are corrupt authorities. Whether it be in the house or the community or the government, we know that there are men who lord it over those that are under them. But God, being the authority over all, will bring every act into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Beloved, we ought to be thankful to our God. 
He is God alone. He is holy. There is none like him. He is the only self-sufficient, the only supremely gracious, the only supremely just, the only God of gods, and the only Lord of lords. He is holy. And we see in verse 1, he is good. He is good. Psalm 119.68, the psalmist declares very simply but profoundly to God, you are good and you do good. To speak of God's goodness is to speak of his righteousness, his hatred of wickedness, his delight in all that is good. And when we say that God is good, it is not to say that he meets some external standard of good, but rather he himself is the source and the standard of all good. If there is anything good that we know or any concept of good, it derives its goodness, rather it receives its goodness from God. He and he alone is good. And Habakkuk declares in chapter 1, verse 13 of his book, you, speaking to Yahweh, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Our Lord is holy and he is good. And we see in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2 and all the verses preceding that he is loving. Our Lord is holy, he is good, and he is loving. Of this phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, of this phrase, Spurgeon writes, we shall have this repeated in every verse of this song, but not once too often. It is the sweetest stanza that a man can sing. What joy that there is mercy, mercy with Jehovah, enduring mercy, mercy enduring forever. We are ever needing it, trying it, praying for it, and receiving it. Therefore, let us ever sing of it. One other commentator states, this sentence is the wonder of Moses, the sum of revelation, and the hope of man. For his steadfast love endures forever. That word for shows uh, that everything is caused from this. It can say because. This is the motive force for everything that we see in this psalm. And it speaks of his steadfast love. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. It can be translated sometimes as covenant loyalty. But more than that, it's displayed throughout scripture as condescending love or mercy. It occurs 245 times in the Hebrew Bible, almost half of them in the Psalms. And one Jewish scholar defines hesed as a free-flowing love that knows no bounds. And it's most closely connected with the covenant relationship between God and his people, Israel. And many commentators suggest that this, this word speaks of God's loyalty to the covenants, that when he shows love, it is motivated out of his loyalty to the covenants that he has made with his people. But other commentators, and I tend to agree with them, say that it's the other way around, that his steadfast love is the motive force for the covenants that he makes with his people, that he has mercy, condescending love toward his people, and he shows them love by making covenants and remaining faithful to those covenants. 
We see that in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Even as he, speaking of the Father, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This steadfast love is the motive force for everything we see in the psalm, and it endures forever. We know that the Lord does not change, and therefore his love does not change His love is unmixed with sin and finiteness. It is not bound by time, space, circumstance, or mood. And if you're following, you may see the conundrum. How is it that God who is holy, the God who is good, how is it that he can have steadfast love that endures forever towards sinners? We know, as we see in Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none good. There is none righteous. All of us have earned the wrath of God. And if he is to be perfectly just, then how is it that he can be merciful? If he is good and hates sin, then how is it that he can have love to sinners? Very simply, it's because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the Father loves his only begotten Son and his perfect work, he loves all that are united to Christ through faith. Beloved, how can God love you, a sinner? Because if you're in Christ, the Father's love is eternally, entirely, and unchangeably based on his love for the person and work of his only begotten Son, Jesus. That is, if you are in Christ, if you're united to him by faith, if you have trusted on him for the salvation from God's wrath and have thus submitted yourself to him as Lord, then the Father's love for you is not based on you. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your intelligence. It's not based on your status. It's based on nothing except the finished work of Christ. you are in Christ, then his love is eternally based on his only begotten son, Jesus. Even when he predestined us, even when he chose his people from before the foundation of the world, it was based on his love for his son. We see in John 6 and John 17 that all that the Father gives the Son are those that the Son saves. In other words, all believers are a gift from the Father to the Son. And so even in the Father's choosing, you were chosen because of his love for the only begotten Son. And it's entirely based on Jesus. We see in Romans that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We see in Ephesians 2 that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we might walk in them. Even our justification and our sanctification are based on the Father's love for his Son. And it's unchanging. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our performance, but in the unchanging person and work of Christ. And we see that in First John 2, where he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin. If you are in Christ, you have an advocate before the Father. If you are in Christ, then even when you stumble and even when you sin, the the Father's wrath is satisfied and Jesus, with his wounded wrists and pierced side, stands as a witness to your justification. How can a holy and good God be loving to sinners? Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you, beloved, if you, friend, have not trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, repent, be saved today. Be saved today because tomorrow is not promised. If you are not in Christ, then you stand as a rebel, an enemy against the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the holy and perfectly just God. A sinner in the hands of an angry God. A sinner in the hands of a perfectly just God who will by no means clear the guilty. Beloved, be saved. There is nowhere to run from God's wrath but to his steadfast love and the person and work of Christ which endures forever. Trust in him for your salvation and repent today, beloved. We are to give thanks to God for who he is and for what he does. For who he is and for what he does. Beloved, sometimes we have a view of love that is distant. And unfortunately, we think that of God's love as well. It's a love in the clouds. It's a love that's a million miles away. It's a love that was displayed on the cross and will be displayed in his kingdom and between then we're kind of on our own. Too often we think or we act like God's love was that which came down to save us and then said, we'll see you at the finish. Try not to bother me until then. This is not God's love. God's love descends into history, descends into the lives of his people, both as a whole and individually, and that is the overwhelming testimony of scripture and what we see over and over again throughout this psalm. Every act that we see from creation to redemption to the judgment of his enemies to even providing food for all flesh, all of it is because of his love. His love is not distant, it is present and descends into history. We see that first when God does what none other can do in verse 4. He is holy. He alone does great wonders. There are none others that can do what the Lord does. We see this in Psalm 15, our, sorry, Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. In Isaiah 41, God sets down a challenge to the idols of the peoples. And he says, set forth your case, says the Lord, in Isaiah 41. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's, 
do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The idols of man are nothing. They are less than nothing, and those who go after them are an abomination to the Lord. The idols are nothing. And in the end, they will be made to bow before the Lord, disarmed and beheaded as Dagon. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, does this matter to me? I don't have an idol of wood or stone or iron in my house. I don't pray to a little God like those people did. And yet, beloved, how often we are prone to wander. How often we look to things that are not God to accomplish that which only God accomplishes. How often we look to something other than God to find hope or happiness or satisfaction or security. Whether it be a marriage or a spouse or our children or the hope of children. To our performance, our accomplishments. To our government, fill in the blank. When we look to those things to fulfill us to keep us safe, to secure us, to satisfy us ultimately when only God, only God can do that. We, might, we make an idol in our heart every time we choose anything aside from God to find ultimate hope, happiness, satisfaction, or security. And these idols also will be as Dagon, disarmed, beheaded, and made to bow. We see that in Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews 12, when the Lord returns, he will roll up creation as a garment. They will be shaken, they will be burned by the consuming fire. And what will they be and what will their work be? What will be the idols in our hearts when Christ returns? Nothing. Only he and his kingdom remain. So, beloved, we cannot be a people that go after idols, that make idols in our hearts. We must look to the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. Only he is our ultimate hope, our ultimate source of happiness and satisfaction and our security. We hope in nothing else but the Lord. And we look to the Lord to do the great wonders that only he can do. One commentator says it like this, it becomes or it is fitting that the great God would grant great things to him alone who doeth great wonders. When you ask great things, you ask such as it is fitting for God to give, whose mercy is great above the heavens. Nothing under heaven can be too great for him to give. The greater things he bestows, the greater glory rebounds to his name. There is no greater wonder that God can accomplish but the salvation of sinners, the sanctification of sinners. And it is even God's delight to provide beyond that. As Jesus says, our, our Father who loves us gives good gifts. So, beloved, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord to accomplish his great wonders. 
salvation of man, the sanctification of yourselves. Restoration and reconciliation cannot be accomplished ultimately except by the Lord. We must seek him. He alone does great wonders and he alone created the world. By wisdom he founded the earth. It is he and he alone who has made the the earth good and beautiful as we see in Genesis. It is he alone who is responsible for the design, the order of this world. It is he and he alone who designed it and we, beloved, get to know why he designed it. Romans 11, we see that from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory alone. This world was created and is sustained by God and it is for God and his glory alone. And so we thank the Lord for doing what only the Lord can do and for creating the world that we enjoy. We see also that he redeems his people and he judges his enemies in verses 10 through 22. He redeems his people, his covenant people, and he judges his enemies. And we see that throughout scripture that when he redeems his people, it is often accompanied with the judgment of his enemies. He rescued Israel and judged Egypt. He provided for his people in the wilderness and he struck down kings. And all of this, beloved, looks forward to the great exodus, the true exodus. When scripture speaks of the time when God finally judges all his enemies and brings his kingdom in, it is spoken of in exodus language. The exodus is a prelude to what God will do in the end. He will finally, fully, and eternally rescue his people and judge his enemies. We see this in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle John writes of his vision, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things had passed away. Going on to verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God, all throughout Scripture, redeems and rescues his covenant people, and judges his enemies. And all of it looks forward to the end, where he will finally, fully, and perfectly redeem and rescue his people from all things that sin has cursed. And when he finally removes his enemies and casts them into the eternal wrath. So beloved, I call you again 
We who are sinners stand as enemies before God unless we have been bought by the blood of Christ. Christ took the wrath of God on the cross. He lived a perfect life on our behalf throughout his life here on earth. And when he suffered on the cross, he suffered not just the pain of Roman torture, not just the injustice of an innocent man being put to death, but he suffered also the wrath of God on behalf of all who would trust in him. Christ, God the Son incarnate, was as an enemy to the Lord on the cross so that we who were his enemies would be made his sons. Make no mistake, God will judge. He will judge. As we saw before, every deed, every secret thing will be brought to account before the Lord. So beloved, repent. Friend, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus, repent. And know also, beloved, those who have trusted in Christ that this speaks to God's hatred of sin as well. We who are in Christ must remember that he hates sin. In James 4, James tells the church, the recipients of his letters, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Romans 6, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Going on to Romans 6, 12. Let sin therefore, pardon, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Beloved, here's something important for us to know about God's hatred for sin, even among his people. Sometimes we, we talk of God loving us, but, but he hates our sin. God loves us, but he can't stand your sin, so you must repent. Beloved, let me tell you that it is because, it is because of God's love for his people that he calls you to repent. It is because of God's love for his adopted children who are united to Christ. It is because of his love for him that he calls them to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. The love of the Father is so great that he desires not one of his children to be entangled in sin that destroys and brings chaos and shame on them. His desire is for his people to glorify and enjoy him 
forever. Not to be trapped in the shame and destruction of sin. This is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Beloved, do not be enticed by sin. Do not be enticed by sin. We must be a people who exuberantly and thankfully praise the Lord for his steadfast love, a love so great that he does not leave us in sin. And perhaps no contemporary author expresses this quite so beautifully as C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, where he says that love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. Love is more sensitive than hatred itself to every blemish in the beloved. Of all powers, he forgives most but condones least. He is pleased with little but demands all. Lewis goes on, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God and you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the love that made the world's the consuming fire himself. Persistent as the artist's love for his work, despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, and jealous, inexorable, and exacting as the love between the sexes. And Lewis concludes by saying, how this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in the Creator's eyes. Oh, beloved, rejoice in the Lord's love, a love so great that He desires what is greatest for you, that is to enjoy Him forever, a love that desires not to leave you to the shame, destruction, and emptiness of sin, but that draws you in to himself, the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. He is to be praised exuberantly and thankfully because of his steadfast love. And finally, beloved, he condescends, verses 23 and 25, he condescends and we see this first with his remembrance. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. It is the Lord that remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that came down 
to rescue his people from Egypt. And it is the Lord that remembers his covenant with his people today that comes down to provide for them, to sanctify them, to make them like Christ. And here, beloved, I want to speak to you who who may find that exuberance and thankfulness is difficult. I know that there are some grieving, that there are some hurt, that there are some confused, that there are some anxious or depressed. I know that there are those among us who have not felt exuberant or may have not felt thankful. And I would direct you to what the author of Lamentations says in chapter three, when he sees the effect of God's judgment on his people. When enemies come and destroy and kill and the prophet finds around him death, destruction, and grief. This is what he says in chapter three. He says that I'm a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse seven, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Verse 12, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and sated me with wormwood. In 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say my endurance has perished and so has the hope. So has my hope from the Lord. This is a man who knows affliction. This is a man who knows grief and pain and sorrow, who knows hopelessness. This is a man who knows what it is to feel as though God himself has turned away from you. And in 19 of chapter three, he says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. One of the most beautiful words in scripture, in verse 21, but, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Well, beloved, what does this man call to mind? This man who is afflicted and grieving and hopeless, this man surrounded by death and destruction, this man who feels as though there is no escape, what does this man call to mind such that he says, therefore I have hope? Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He says, I call this to mind and therefore I have hope for his steadfast love endures forever. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Beloved, the Lord does not forget his people. The Lord does not forget his people. It is good that we who are afflicted and grieving should wait and remember that his steadfast love endures forever and that the Lord will remember his people in their low estate. He doesn't just remember, beloved, he rescues. He rescues whether it be finally and fully in the end when he calls us into his kingdom or it may even be here in this life where he brings reconciliation and restoration where when we felt hopeless, when we felt like there was no way to forgive, he can rescue his people even from that. He is a God that rescues his people. And I love this in verse 25. Verse 25, to him who gives food to all flesh. Beloved, if there ever seems like there's an anticlimax in a passage, it's probably a good reason. What is, what is the psalmist doing where he's giving this exuberant, thankful praise and directing us to praise the Lord for his creative power, his wonderful works, his redemption and rescuing, his judgment of his enemies, these great events throughout Israel's history, and he ends this survey of history of God's steadfast love with food. Why? I would argue because the psalmist remembers that God's love descends into history not just in the most magnificent ways, but the most mundane and intimate moments even something as regular as eating food is because of God's steadfast love. And it may be that if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ yet, that this can be confusing. We, we've seen through this psalm the, his love for his people and his judgment for his enemies his hatred of sin, how can it be that everybody who enjoys food is a recipient of his steadfast love? How can we say that God hates and judges his enemies, that he hates sin, and yet that all who enjoy food are recipients of his steadfast love? Paul gives us great insight into this in Romans chapter 2. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you have enjoyed food, or if you have enjoyed the seasons, the sun and the rain, if you have laid your, pel- laid your head on a pillow at night, if you have received any good thing in God's world, it is because he is kind to you and his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That as you go through this world knowing that there is a just God who judges sins and yet you have received such goodness that you are meant to recognize his mercy, his grace, and to respond to his call. So beloved, do not profane the kindness of God any longer if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not profane the kindness of God any longer. Repent. Repent and come to the steadfast love of the Lord which endures forever. What then are we to do with all this? How are we to live? It's very simple in our psalm. One imperative repeated four times and given here at the end as a punctuation. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. In Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, Paul puts it like this. We are to look carefully how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with your heart. In verse 20 of Ephesians 5, giving thanks always and for everything giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's simple, beloved. When you wake in the morning, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. When you lay your head down at night, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. When you're stuck in traffic on the 405, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. When you sit down to eat the food that God has provided, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. When his providence is hard, when he brings affliction, when he brings trials to make you look more like Christ, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Beloved, we are to give thanks to God always and for everything because his steadfast love endures forever. For that, I want to conclude with Paul's words in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. May this be our prayer 
For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A tall order, beloved, impossible for man. But Paul continues, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Oh Lord, Lord God, we need you. We need you every hour. Lord, how prone we are to wander how prone we are to forget your goodness and your grace and your generosity. How prone we are to turn our eyes to look at worthless things. How prone we are to seek the vain, fleeting pleasure of sin. How prone we are to grumble. How prone we are to forget all your grace, God. We need you, Lord, be with us. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can accomplish in your people, that you would save, that all who hear preaching of your gospel today would trust in you for the salvation from your wrath, that you would sanctify that all of us who have trusted in you, O Lord, might behold you more clearly that we would lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and fix our eyes on Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That we may know your love more fully, God. We may know it and that we may give thanks for it every day, always, and for everything. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We pray that you be glorified in our thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions. May we be a people who give, always lovingly give, exuberant, thankful praise to you, God. Pray this in your name. Amen.